Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history. Like parades, bruises and almonds. Now, where on earth did those come from, Sam Willis? Where on earth did (laughs) those come from? Do you know what I want to do? I want to do either toolboxes... Or toolkits, or yeah. inclusion, because I've got this exciting new project which has created a gendered interpretation toolkit, and I am about to roll it out globally. So I want a chance, I want a platform to talk about that. It's all about working with museums, about how you make them much more inclusive places. However, we could also do worms, germs, and squirms, perms, firms, and erms. Erm, I love the idea of erms, Sam. I think that's the history that? of it's the history of pauses. Um, oh. <laughs> um, and not knowing, not knowing what to say next. That's so brilliant. I think we should definitely do the history of erm. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, of course, um. we're never tongue-tied like that because we'll be following the links in our minds. Do you see that seamless link there? We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew? Should you have listened to our recent podcast, you would know that the history of the thumb is in fact all about torture, extraction of confessions and leaning on people via slave owners, witches, the Gestapo, mobsters and early modern Scotland. It's also all about gladiatorial combat, General Tom Thumb and folklore. Did you know that? Mm. Or, it was a very interesting one. Very interesting. Or that the history of houses, <laughs> the history of houses, we all live in, well, most of us live in houses, um, is all about the Cambridge Regis professors J.B. Bury and G.R. Elton, one of my favourite historians there, on the building blocks of history. Yes, of course, it's the houses of history. It's also about the discovery of secret rooms in Devon, priest holes, hiding places and Catholicism in Elizabethan England. It's about domestic architecture and family life via Frank Lloyd Wright. It's also about the Great Fire of London in 1666. Of course it is. Everything comes back to the Great Fire of London eventually. Uh. And different the rooms and the uh, corridors is interesting. I was in uh, Europe's longest corridor um, just a few a handful of days ago, James. Mm. Um, and we did a whole episode on corridors, guys. So if you're interested in architecture or the history of houses, the history of buildings, do listen to that. And um, yeah, I was at the Dartmouth Royal Naval College, where there is the longest corridor in Europe. Um, How long uh, is it? it, it I don't know the answer to that, but really quite long. Really I mean, quite it's, long. You, you can't quite see the end of it. Like longer than a football pitch, long. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's long. Yeah. I'd say it was longer than a football pitch. I, mm. I don't think. I don't think I'm wrong. We should find out. Anyway, let me introduce you, James. Uh, let me say of my fellow presenter: If history were a plate of fish and chips, I'm not talking something nasty and slimy here, but something reassuringly expensive, fresh, perhaps unusual, a monkfish and chips, a sea bass and chips, maybe even ling. It was sitting there on a plate, ready to go. This man, yes, he would be the waiter hovering at your elbow, poised with a bottle of the finest of ketchups to turn that meal from its fishy caterpillar status into a fishy butterfly via the medium of a magical tomato-based red sauce. Uh, The Dumbledore of sauces, that's who he is. He's Professor Extraordinary of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. 
Hello, Sam. The Dumbledore of sources. That makes me sound like some sort of odd Sid James kind of character. (laughs) I feel very welcomed there. And you may well yourselves be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a ketchup related historian, he'd only be like the American entrepreneur Henry John Hines, he of the H.J. Hines Company, and frankly, Mr. Tomato Ketchup. So universal is his historical wisdom, so quotidian is the importance of his history that, frankly, every household should consume it. And signed copies of Histories of the Unexpected can miraculously be purchased from our website at a very reasonable price. (laughs) He's so good that he should be bottled and available everywhere. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend of mine, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. You should um, be bottled, I think. Thanks. I've never been bottled. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, we'd have to whiz you up um, yes. and then put you in bottles, which would... We're talking about being being, a, yes. being put in a bottle rather than being smacked around the face with a yes. bottle. Yes, 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 um, yes. Not, yes. Uh, I'm not suggesting if you're interested that people come in and attack that, you. <laughs> you should listen to our history of the scar because we do talk about uh, people being scarred by being hit, mm. hit with bottles, but yes. different thing. Yikes. Today, uh, if you haven't worked it out, we're not doing butterflies <laughs> or anything else or bottles. We should do the bottle, though. We're doing ketchup. Um, a uh, an inspired topic from James himself. You were reading an article on ketchup. Is that I what wasn't? No, I literally was just. Do you know? It, this this is this is an insight into how I come up with these ideas. It's either that I'm reading something, or I'm gandering around the house, and I was, I was <laughs> you're hungry, looking in the fridge, <laughs> and there was a bottle of ketchup in there, uh, and I thought, Brilliant. since we keep ketchup in the fridge i'm sure not all households do and i thought oh let's do ketchup and i want to start with a jonathan swift poem of all things uh from um a panegyric on the dn in the person of a lady of the north which was written in 1730 she sent her priests in wooden shoes from haughty gaul to make ragouts instead of wholesome bread and cheese to dress their soups and fricassees and for our homebred British cheer, Botargo, catsup, and caviar. Do you like that little one? Yes, I do. I love the ragu line at the beginning. Yes, and there is catsup, catsup, which is which is an early version of ketchup, and so that mm. that's a sort of little sort of starting point for us. Where are you going to go with ketchup, Sam Willis? Well, I was I was frozen with panic, and um, <laughs> then I. Um, took to the newspapers, which is ah. usually the, the best thing for me, and I realised that actually uh, the ketchup's got quite a lot to do with things that are happening in the world at the minute, um, and particularly um, with uh, what's happening in Russia, particularly with Western companies leaving Russia, and also with the uh, appalling uh, school shooting in Texas. Um, so two really interesting links there which I've uncovered. Uh, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about, um, about Russia, because I think this is really interesting. Because the history of ketchup has actually got a, an interesting chapter in the history of culture clashes, in the spread particularly of Western culture, um, very important in um, geographical history. Um, and I've been thinking about this particularly because of the recent news that McDonald's is leaving Russia because of Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. 
Um, I found this whole thing fascinating, the way that McDonald's arrived in Russia in the 1990s. So it's one of the first um, Western restaurants to manage to kind of breach the Iron Curtain in those days in the late 90s when, um, well, the early 90s, sorry, when, when the Iron Curtain was, was coming down and Russia was opening itself up to the world. I've really enjoyed watching the footage of people eating um, at, at McDonald's restaurants in Moscow. Um, as an account, there were 30,000 burgers sold on the first day. Um, a really extraordinary history. And at the time, Russians were, if you read the accounts, they were, they were literally hungry. Um, they weren't just sort of, you know, hungry for Western culture. They were starving. Their stores didn't have much food. They didn't have uh, the, the easy access to, to food, and particularly to takeaways that... Um, that Westerners had by 1990. You know, we're not talking about the 50s or the 60s here. It was the 1990s. Um, and I thought that was uh, really interesting. But um, ketchup is obviously an important part of this story. And um, ketchup itself was widely introduced in Russia in the early 1990s. So it all becomes part of this opening up of Russia to Western taste, to, to Western um, Western food, but they did, of course, have a form of ketchup before that. I mean, ketchup itself has been around, with a, you know, a kind of piquant uh, tomatoey sauce, and they had it was just called tomato sauce before ketchup actually arrived. But when it did start arriving, um, this is in the USSR, so you know, um, Soviet Russia, they started importing um, ketchup, but it was Bulgarian ketchup, and that was what was the official name. And it wasn't till the 1990s that American ketchup comes into Russia. Now, with the um, ongoing war in Ukraine, Kraft Heinz, uh, James, it sounds like you're going to talk about the Heinz company later, but they are one of the uh, huge modern companies which have said they're suspending all investments in Russia, as well as all exports and imports of Heinz products into and out of Russia. So we've now gone back to a phase of there being no Russian ketchup, just like it was perhaps before in the Iron Curtain in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, where, where Bulgarian ketchup, I'm not sure what it'll be replaced by, but it'll be replaced by, by something and there'll be um, new economic links uh, between Russia and some other creator of ketchup in Europe. We're interested to see how that pans out. Uh, but there's, it's not just this one example of it in Russia. There are all sorts of other fascinating examples of cultural, cultural um, assimilation uh, movement. And another great example is Thailand in the 1960s. So Thailand in the 60s really opens it up to Western, itself up to Western culture through the media of film, and particularly through spaghetti westerns. So these are westerns but made in Europe, particularly made in Italy, though there were other Westerns made all over all over Europe as well. But spaghetti Westerns are very important, uh, very influential in Thailand. And with the popularity of spaghetti Western comes certain types of Italian cuisine, most particularly macaroni and pizza. But at the same time, it's linked, this, this spaghetti Western is... Um, you've got this Italian influence on the creation of the movies, but the American influence on the, the, the story of, of Westerns and the uh, the ties stick them together. And what they do is they start having pizzas, but with ketchup. Um, and it, it, even today, if you go into Bangkok and you get a pizza, it's very, you know, you're often given ketchup as a, almost as a replacement for the ragu. You get, get so much of it, you get packets and packets of it to go alongside it. Now, a lot of Americans or Italians, I think, would find um, ketchup on pizza tantamount to blasphemy 
almost at least completely unacceptable. But the Thais are very proud of it. They see it as being an example of them mixing up cultures um, food-wise, but that kind of uh, fusion of food being something that is very much praiseworthy and uh, it's a place where you get the most extraordinary cultural mixes but um, one of the, the clearest manifestations of this is having ketchup on pizza something American, something Italian consumed in Thailand all because of cowboy movies in the 1960s James. Oh my word Sam that was a tour de force uh, I must admit <laughs> I'm very low church on ketchup and pizza in that I love ketchup on pizza and Ooh. my 10 year old told me that I you know that it wasn't Italian enough, uh, and that I was a disgrace to the family uh, for eating that. But all this talk... That's your Thai roots, James. It, it, probably, it, is. it probably is my Thai roots. <laughs> all this talk about, um, about America and uh, it makes me think about, about other recent sort of imperial endeavours uh, connected to ketchup. And I haven't really done much preparation on this at all, as you can probably tell. But you're thinking about the Trump era and some of the trade wars and... Mm -hmm. Ketchup is dis is quintessentially American, isn't it? Coming out of the yep. sort of the the Heinz company, started off with a sort of failed venture in horseradish, and then uh, the second company uh, was set up to produce uh, tomato ketchup, and so it became associated with America. And so when you look at the tariff wars between Canada and the U.S. and between the EU and the U.S around towards the middle of Trump's presidency, you know, not only are tariffs being put on Harley Davidson motorcycles, but they're also being put on things like Heinz ketchup because it is, you know, it's something that is seen as so American. But I didn't want to talk about that at all. Uh, what I wanted to talk about was a sort of prehistory of tomato ketchup and the sort of more early origins. And I came across a great uh, little article on um, on ketchup, uh, 18th century ketchup and I can't really I can't I'd like to sort of uh, acknowledge the person B uh, Gulati uh, is all the as, as affiliation I can get from it but it um, but it's it's a super little little piece I think done as a sort of student uh, exercise as at the University of Warwick with a very enterprising course there and it what it does is it looks at the phenomenon of ketchup in the 18th century and I'm going to sort of borrow uh, certain of the the things from there because I think it's got a really fascinating history that it starts off not as ketchup as we know it now if you think about ketchup nowadays it's it's a sort of highly sugary calorific tomato based product but earlier on when it comes from Southeast Asia, it isn't. It's it originates in a different form. It, it's again a sort of piquant, spicy sauce made of of you know anchovies, soybeans, uh, and later on it's sort of mixed with mushrooms, wine, vinegar, spices, even walnuts. So it has this sort of really interesting history that connects you to East-West trade, and so it comes across to Britain in the 18th century, and you start getting it appearing in household recipe books and it's all about this connection between the east and the west and one of the first recipes that we've got in these cookbooks which are aimed at women women running households often gentlewomen who are in charge of a, a whole sort of series of cooks the first example that we come across is uh, a book called the art of cookery published in 1747 by a writer called hannah glass uh, which is one of the most popular uh, books, cookery books in the 18th century. Uh, and on its sort of contents page, 
the art of cookery and made plain and easy, which far exceeds anything of the kind ever yet published. Chapter 19 is to make anchovies, vermicella, catsup vinegar, and to keep artichokes. Um, and then there's a chapter for, you'll be interested in this, for ship's captains, Sam, uh, to make catsup to keep 20 years, take a gallon of strong stale beer, one pound of anchovies washed from the pickle, a pound of shallots peeled, half an ounce of mace, half an ounce of cloves, a quarter of an ounce of whole pepper, three or four large races of ginger, two query of the large mushroom flaps rubbed to pieces, cover all this close and let it simmer till it is half washed, then strain it through a flannel bag, let it stand still till it is quite cold then bottle it. You may carry it to the Indies. So there we are, it's all about you know preserving and taking things abroad. A spoonful of this to a pound of fresh butter melted makes a fine fish sauce, or in the room of gravy sauce, the stronger and staler the beer is, the better the ketchup will be. And it then, it, we then see a move over to colonial America uh, in 1742. So, um, and this is in a, a volume uh, by Eliza Smith and her uh, famous uh, cookbook uh, from the period, um, which basically it's written for a British audience. Many of the, the, the ingredients are, you know, are, are, they're imported from, from the empire, but they're given this sort of British sort of take on them. But this is a cookbook that is published in colonial America, and I just want to read you uh, the recipe for to make, and it says to make English ketchup. Take a wide-mouthed bottle, put therein a pint of the best white wine vinegar, so not beer here. Uh, putting in ten or twelve cloves of a shallot uh, of a shallot peeled and just bruised. Then take a quarter pint of the best Langoon white wine. Boil it a little and put it to 12 or 14 anchovies washed and shred and dissolve them in the wine and then cold and when sorry and when cold put them in the bottle then take a quarter of a pint more of white wine and put in it mace ginger sliced a few cloves a spoonful of whole pepper just bruised and let them boil all a little when near cold, slice in almost a whole nutmeg and some lemon peel, and likewise put in two or three spoonfuls of horseradish. Then stop it close for a week. Shake it once or twice a day, then use it. It is good to put into fish sauce or any savoury dish or meat. You may add it to clear liquor that comes from mushrooms. Now, the interesting thing here is that what you've got is cuisine is very different from how we think of it today. You know, you we you know a lot of sort of high end food is cooked in in restaurants, um, whereas in the 18th century most of that high end production would have been in the household. And there's a really interesting relationship between this kind of ketchup that you're seeing here and provisioning within the household uh, trade with the with the with the empire trade with the the sort of with the east but also the kinds of roles that women would have within the household in terms of medicine and when i come back after you've done your next little riff i will talk about the way in which ketchup is actually was actually used as a medicine 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mm, Would you believe that? Smear it all over your face. I do. It's fascinating, (laughs) isn't it? No, no, no. It's literally (laughs) smearing it on your face. But I will come back to that. It's also about poison as well. So it's about murder, Mm. crime, theft. Mm. My God, it's a it's a it's a dangerous <laughs> commodity. Is a, I like it's a dangerous <laughs> commodity. Ketchup, Sam Willis. It, it is. I loved your um uh, your recipe stuff. What do you think the key ingredient of mushroom ketchup is? Probably anchovies. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I tell you what, it's not mushrooms. No, um, anchovies. This is from, this is from the um, uh, Scientific American, March the twenty fourth, eighteen sixty six. The latest public sensation in England, in a small way, is mushroom ketchup. It seems that no mushrooms are used in the preparation of this delightful compound, but that the base of it is decayed beef liver, called Smithfield mushrooms. The London grocer thus describes the process of manufacture. This is how the crisp mushrooms of Smithfield are prepared for the delicate palates of the discriminating British public who find poison in and forswear pickles and lick their lips at the delicious juice of decayed animal matter. Enormous quantities of bullock's livers, we beg pardon, Smithfield mushrooms, are collected in England and imported in closed bags from the continent. These are bought up by way ketchup makers, not one or two known roughs, but men who are not generally known as publicans and sinners, and who have the confidence, and we may add the cash, of the largest distributors of pickles and sauces in the United Kingdom. The mushrooms are salted in tubs and allowed to remain until the mass becomes thoroughly putrid and the details are nasty. But we cannot, in justice to the Anti-Adulteration League, withhold them. The contents of the tubs are then boiled in iron tanks, holding about 150 gallons each. Each boiling occupies a whole night. It's never carried on by day for the simple reason that the stench from the boilers would bring down the indignation of the neighbours, who inconsistently hold out one hand to the poor retailer for cheap luxuries and with the other destroy the sources of their production. Copper tanks are never used for the boiling operation for reasons that will be apparent to our readers. All that remains now is to strain off the liquid carefully and add to its natural fragrance and pungency by mixing with it the spices of Araby, the blessed. So I just love that, James. I'm just going to leave Ooh. that as a little teaser there for a Ooh. putrid beef liver, well, you, not mushrooms. Oh, well, do you realise that uh, mushrooms because mushrooms are, are used as poison? And, and all of this is because, you know, there are mushrooms that you can eat there are edible mushrooms and there are of course poisonous mushrooms and there's a there's a lovely little table uh in a book by malcolm morris uh called the book of health 1883 where he he talks about the different kinds of mushrooms that you can go around and find and whether they are edible or poisonous and i found this rather confusing because it's a it's a table uh an index to to popular names and I didn't realise that uh, E refers to edible and P refers to poisonous uh, mushrooms. And that is in a a figure down the side. 
um, and it isn't quite clear uh, whether they are poisonous when they give you the entire list. So there are astringent mushrooms, bitter chew mushrooms, blood-stained mushrooms, uh, bundled stump mushrooms. Those are all poisonous, as you could probably imagine. Uh, candle clavaria and chanterelle and clouded mushrooms and curled belvella, uh, edible moral tube mushrooms uh, are all um, are all edible. Uh, but emetic mushrooms, as you could imagine from the name, uh, are not. They are poisonous. Fairy ring champignon uh, is also edible, and it goes on sort of listing all of these. Uh, all of these um all of these names including fiery milk mushrooms fetid mushrooms uh, leather fungus and woodwitch you can imagine they are you know as poisonous as you can imagine gloomy tube mushrooms griping milk mushrooms and so it goes on with all the oh, one final one livid uh, milk mushrooms is poisonous as anything but what's interesting then is that if you have a look at the old bailey records online uh, mushrooms also crop up in in criminal trials uh, and there was one uh, criminal trial uh, that I wanted to just sort of just talk about and again this is from um, this is from the article uh, that I was reading and let me find it here because it is it is linked to it is linked to poisoning um, so the idea is that it's not not that you necessarily find a poisonous mushroom and then make somebody eat it. But as you were saying, the the, the mushroom often gets full of of water. It's heavy water content, and unless it is pickled and done properly, it can actually go really bad, and and germs and bacteria can breed in it, and that can then you know lead to you know people being poisoned. If you think about the the sort of the, the symptoms of being poisoned by mushrooms. I don't know why I'm laughing about that, um, because it, it's terrible. Uh, I remember a Clint Eastwood film where um, where he sort of he's a Civil War soldier who turns up at a, a, a girls' school and um, and sort of installs himself there. And they they end up sort of chopping his leg off and then poisoning him with mushrooms. I can't remember what it was called, but it's a brilliant film uh, that I remember, you know, watching watching long ago. But the, the the sort of symptoms of being poisoned by mushrooms is giddiness, pain, you know, vomiting, and then eventually, you know, unless you're able to purge it out of you, you know, uh, dying. Um, but there's there is a case um, in an, an 18th century uh, case. Uh, that I just wanted to talk to you about, um, which is a, a central criminal court, uh, and it is a, a charge of murder against one Alfred Edwards, aged 24, was yesterday charged with the murder of Jane Gregory, a woman of the town whom he visited. Witnesses deposed to having seen, when prisoner and deceased were together, a bottle and cup which she said contained catsup. But... She had drunk some of the contents, became extremely sick and was found dying next morning with every appearance of being poisoned. She was on the friendliest terms with the prisoner to whom she declared she was dying and attributed it to be the brandy bitters he gave her. He replied, nonsense, it could not be that. I have drank plenty of it in my time. When called upon to drink of it, he first spat some out and afterwards drank. Two witnesses whom he asked to take some stated that they experienced no ill effects from it. 
Dr. Leeson examined the stomach and analysed the contents of the bottle. He discovered some poison in the stomach, but could not say that was sufficient to cause death. The jury then found a verdict of da, 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 not guilty. The prisoner, who is who up to this time had maintained the greatest self-possession, appeared quite overcome. In the course of the trial, Mr. Baron Anderson made some very strong observations on the conduct of publicans who have music licenses, letting women of loose character into their rooms without payment. Goodness me, this is stirring stuff, Sam Willis. Mm. I, I, I love that, without payment. Without, with, without payment, yes. Without payment. Without payment. Yeah. That is from, that's from 1844. So Central Criminal Court from the Examiner. 1844 was the date of that. Mm. Mm. What are you going to finish so up with? Uh, well, um, tragedies, unfortunately. Oh, um, I, I, again, Ooh. always like trying to link, link the history with what's going on in the news and this um, appalling uh, school shooting in Texas. Um, there is actually an interesting history uh, of tragedy that is linked with ketchup. Um, um, particularly listening to the accounts of the bereaved, you realise how tough it is when their world stops completely and no one else's does, everyone else's continues. Um, and th- there is a long history of school tragedies. I'm not just talking about school shootings here, but, but all sorts of tragedies. Um, the Abba Fan one in Wales, uh, particularly important in British history, uh, that's October 1966. I've got 109 kids killed, five teachers. Um, when a, 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 a slag heap from a from a mine collapses and buries the school, but I came across uh, a really interesting first-hand account by a chap called Isaac Bloom from the early 1990s, and he's uh, recalling what happened to his sister Rachel Tilly Bloom. Now, a bit of background here: uh, you need to know about Henry John Heinz III. He was born uh, in October 1938. Um, and he was the only son of Jack Heinz, who is he's heir to the Heinz company, who make make ketchup essentially. Henry Heinz, very successful politician, um, and he was uh, a, a senator from 1977. I think he was hotly tipped to be a future president, and seems to have been much loved by all. So the Heinz company, the ketchup company, was founded by his great great grandfather in 1869. Um, so in April 1991, Heinz and six other people are killed. And they're killed when his aircraft, he's in a private aircraft, um, and it's flying above uh, Lower Merion Township in Pennsylvania, particularly it's flying above the Merion Elementary School. Uh, They've got a problem with the landing gear. A helicopter is called out to visually check whether their landing gear is actually down, which will enable them to down. And they are doing all of this above the Merion Elementary School. Um, There then is a a catastrophic uh, collision. The helicopter flies into the aeroplane and both of them uh, land in the school playground. And they kill everyone on board and the pilots of the helicopter. And they kill two children at the school, one of which is the sister of the chap who wrote this account. Um, So that's Rachel Tilly Bloom. Um, The the descriptions of actually what happened is is extraordinary. There's descriptions of a scarf found in a burning oak tree, a stroller engulfed in flames, um, some footprints seared into a carpet... Uh, it's a, a truly appalling tragedy. 
Um, but there is some sense, actually, it could have been much worse. If it was 15 minutes later, just 15 minutes later, then there would have been hundreds of children would have been in the schoolyard. As it was, there were only two. So um, let me just then read a little bit about this description of uh, from uh, from Isaac. So he, he was only two when his sister died. And it's all to do, it's not to do, it's not a, a, an eyewitness description of the events. He was two, he can't remember anything of it. Um, but it's more to do with be brought up in a family who's um who've suffered extreme and unexpected tragedy in this case when the 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 ketchup mogul died in their school Heinz was killed when his aeroplane collided in midair with a Sonico helicopter after Heinz's little passenger plane smashed into the helicopter the fiery wreckage fell onto the playground of the school and killed two children one of them was my sister Rachel I don't know who the other one was. My father has a box of magazine and newspaper clippings in the basement, and every April, going on for 20 years now, he sits me down and goes over them with me, like I'm studying for an exam. What was the destination of the plane? How many former presidents attended Heinz's funeral? How much did Sonico settle their lawsuit for? What was the name of the student teacher the school sent out to identify the bodies? What did we eat for dinner that first night? My dad wants me to mourn Rachel as he does, but she was six, I was two and a half. I do not remember her. Most people do not have the benefit of newspaper archives documenting the loss of their loved ones. And I do enjoy, or not enjoy, but appreciate looking back over the black and white photographs. He then goes on to describe the family um, and uh, the, the, all of their different quirks. And he particularly goes on to talk about the dog, which I thought was fascinating. So uh, he has a, a the dog is called the president and he has a, a bit of an interesting relationship with the dog. There is one exception to my father's ill feelings towards the dog. He insists on feeding him. He personally ensures that the dog is never hungry. Tienes hambre el presidente? He'll ask. Yes, of course you are. It's dinner time, after all. How's kibble sound tonight? The dog barks with excitement and bounds at my father's knees. Oh, what a hungry doggy, my father purrs as he dumps the kibble into the dish. What a hungry president we have. I was once in the car with my father and the president when my father pulled up into a McDonald's drive through My father never eats fast food. Why are we going to McDonald's, I asked. The president is hungry, he replied. I looked at the dog who'd just woken from a nap in the back seat. He didn't look hungry to me at all. How do you know? He just is, I can tell. Do you have some kind of sixth sense to detect the president's hunger level? We'll be home in ten minutes. Can't he wait? I don't want him to be hungry all the way home. Then he turned towards the microphone next to the drive through menu and said, Yeah, hi, I'd like two double cheeseburgers, please, but without ketchup. Ketchup? on neither. Since 1991, when my sister died, nobody in my family has eaten Heinz ketchup, not even the dog. How about that, James? Very moving tale, Sam Willis. Yeah, yeah, Very absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. So I think it t- turns out that, um, that, that the history of ketchup, I was a bit suspicious about it, uh, is it quite extraordinary and very relevant to what's going on today? Yes, um, it is. In, in, in the I, news. I have one final little thing about the oh, great. about mushroom ketchup. And I think you read a, you had a recipe for mushroom, mushroom ketchup earlier on. And I have another one here. The large flaps are best. Pick the straws or dirt off them. 
lay them into a broad earthen vessel, strew a good deal of salt over them, let them lie a day in the salt, break them with your hands, put them into a stew pan, and let them boil two or three minutes, strain them through a coarse cloth, wringing it hard to take out all the juice, let it stand to settle, pour off the clear which run through a thick flannel bag, to three quarts of juice allow an ounce and a half of black pepper, mace, nutmeg, cloves and ginger of each quarter of an ounce, boil it briskly ten minutes, when cold put it into pint bottles with the seasoning. And so there we have a, a brilliant little recipe from the ladies, housewives and cookmaids assistant, uh, 1795. Um, I think what's interesting here is the, it's, it's, it's the really time-consuming, laborious nature of making this kind of ketchup. First of all, you've got to go out and you've got to forage for them. You've got to find the right things. You've got to work out whether they're poisonous or not. You've then got to clean them. And, and actually, in the 18th century, you have merchants who are dedicated to going out and literally, you know, dealing in, in mushrooms. But then it's a very lengthy process within the household to actually you know, produce this kind of, of ketchup. And then what's interesting, and I, we're getting at a sort of a domestic world of, of female cooking within the household, provisioning, overseeing, you know, staff, but also, and this is what I want to talk about, there's a connection between the household ketchup and medicine. And what's interesting is if you look at the, look at the printed texts from the 18th century and you think about the cookery books but also you start looking at books that are connected to medicine that are connected to diet and health mushroom ketchup starts appearing as a recipe in these places and I'm going to end with one of the most interesting uses of it which is not within the kitchen but it's actually to treat skin disorders have you ever seen pictures of somebody uh, suffering from wing ringworms, Sam? No. A Google up ringworms now and, and click images on your Google button and you'll get a sense of precisely what ringworms look like. Which is a sort of little oh worm, gosh, sort of berries. Uh, yeah, they, they, I mean, it's like a, imagine a chicken pox scar, yeah. or we've got monkey pox now. Um, so they are these sort of small pimples. They they contain uh, a, a fluid. If you move around it and scratch, uh, it's actually really bad for it and can can spread it and can you can suffer from infection. Um, there are a number of writers, including Robert Thomas, who in 1790 thought that one of the ways that you could eradicate this or treat it was to use ketchup. And he wrote in, in his book, Mushroom ketchup, made use of as an external application to ringworms, is said to be an effectual remedy for eradicating them. And then he, he wrote in, a, in another book in... 1807, uh, that the itch caused by ringworm is remedied by mushroom ketchup being applied to the pimples on the skin, which is very efficacious, he said. So we've gone a long way from, from Russia, uh, off to the, the Far East. Um, we've talked about accidents. Uh, we've talked about 18th century domestic manuals and, and now uh, poisoning. And now we've reached at uh, a cure for ringworms. Uh, an unexpected <laughs> history of ketchup indeed, Sam Willis. 
Amazing stuff, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. That was fascinating. Um, do please follow me on social media to keep in touch. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the sea, maritime history, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on social media. We're on Facebook and we are on Instagram. So you can come along and befriend us there. Uh, we also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see all the things that we've been up to and get signed copies of our books. And should you wish to become a patron uh, of Histories of the Unexpected, you do need to do nothing more than head over to patreon.com and check out our page there. And anything that you can do to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past would be much appreciated. And if you are somebody who works in a heritage centre or works in a museum, heritage site, and are interested in the inclusion agenda, do get in touch with me uh, in that I'm doing a new project this summer and working with a number of institutions and would love to hear from you. And we're going to be doing a series of webinars uh, around the Gendered Interpretations Toolkit. So if that sounds like your, if that floats your boat, do get in touch. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Cheerio. Bye-bye. <laughs>